Welcome to the Emotioneering Podcast with me, Melissa Curran, the founder and CEO of the Modern Mind Group. We are emotioneering human performance, not engineering it. In season one, we talked about emotioneering the modern mindset and really about those people skills and the expression and the communication. In season two that we're in now, we're going to have topics center around everything to do with emotioneering business results. And that's going to cover creating great places to work, increasing profits, human capital, the people, getting record-breaking results, and world-class employee engagement. I'm going to be interviewing guests that I know are absolute experts in this area, and will be able to share their knowledge, share their learnings on the journey with you and myself. And I'm really looking forward to getting in to all things emotioneering with them. Remember to subscribe to YouTube, to the Facebook page, to Instagram, LinkedIn. And of course, you can go to the website, modernmindgroup.co.uk, and you'll get our monthly newsletter there. Enjoy the show. Today, my guest on the podcast, Emotioneers, is... Sam Blazard, and he is here as a business leader and he works for a well-established UK brand which is Fortnum and Mason and within that he's been really holding up and leading the engagement and communications function there uh, for quite some time and is also extremely passionate about branding, storytelling, internal communications and how that can really shape businesses for the future. So hello Sam, welcome to the show. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me. It's very kind of you to uh, include me as a guest on your show. You're, you're welcome. Now, just to give the, the sort of listeners a little bit of a backstory, I went to the Employee Engagement Summit, saw you there on stage talking about internal communications, the value of the storytelling within the brand, employee engagement, why these things matter. And I absolutely knew that you'd be a perfect guest for our audience to learn, get some insights from. As young as you look on the podcast with me right now, you have over two decades of experience in this area from, you know, John Lewis, Royal Mail, Unilever, uh, the UK government. Um, you have worked across so many different sectors, you know, the, commu- the, the construction industry as well. Um, so if there's someone that's going to be able to really share some pearls of wisdom with us it's going to be you today right thanks very much no you're very you're very kind in your <laughs> intro uh yeah it's, it's it's only when somebody kind of reels all these things uh, off back at you that you realize you've had such kind of broad experience but of course it's a great privilege to do the job that we do and I always say that so I feel very fortunate to have had all those great experiences anyway and you're going to share them with us now, which is even better. And that's that's it. When people can really share from people that are doing the do, that are sharing this knowledge, they can connect the dots. And maybe sometimes you might hear the same thing from different people, but it just lands in a different way, doesn't it? Um, so, for, I mean, I've obviously shaped it, but why don't you tell us a little bit about you, you know, some of the hobbies, your life, what, what you're all about, Sam? Well, in terms of my personal life. Well, as well as business, you know, it's a little bit. Yeah, more. yeah. Well, I, I suppose the, the quick, I'll try and make the elevator pitch reasonably quick. You would hope so as a commons person. Um, so you, you're absolutely right in what you say. I, I have a sort of 20 year plus career. Uh, my bread and butter in the main has been employee communications, but I've, I've sort of done lots of other related communications roles. 
um, not least with sort of trade associations earlier in my career um, for the Marketing Society and the IVCA. Um, but I've also, I think increasingly, especially in the last five to 10 years, um, I think like a lot of internal communicators, we've found our content being used in the external sphere, you know, whether that's um, internal content that's been re-edited for LinkedIn or YouTube or Instagram. And, you know, we've all had to kind of up our game where that's concerned. Um, in my personal life, uh, I am a father of two wonderful daughters. Um, I live in kind of southeast or greater London. Um, and I have been in London for about 20 years. Um, I'm a native of Edinburgh. Some of you might detect from the accent. If I still <laughs> have an accent, people tell me that I do. Um, and yeah, hobbies. I like fitness. I like music. Um, I'm a kind of hobbying sort of guitarist and uh, sort of quite a bad keyboard player. But um, yeah, I'm into lots of things in my personal life, including actually collecting sort of uh, vintage vinyl, which my wife isn't massively happy about right now um, because it can be quite an expensive hobby, but it's something I love. But in, in truth, she bought me the um, the record player a few years ago, which I was initially disinterested in, but now I'm extremely interested in it. So there you go. Wow. Well, see, you find out all sorts of fascinating things uh, when you interview people. And, and that's that's why I love doing what I do. And, and I know that you're a podcast host as well. You've obviously got comms um, from The Shed, uh, which is your podcast where you interview other communications leaders. Uh, and we'll get into that in a moment. But I also love vinyl. So and I'm, I don't actually get often to share this with the audience, but um, I also got a vinyl uh, player, record player for my birthday a couple of years ago. And now I'm just to hold it and just listen to it in the way it's meant to be. I just yeah, there's something just amazing about that, isn't it? Do you know about Record Store Day? Are you aware of that? No, I don't. So I don't know how I don't know how long Record Store Day has been a thing, but twice a year um, there's a thing called Record Store Day, and I know it happens in the US and the UK, um, where lots of record stores that are well-known, established, famous record shops. So the one I go to is I I, I go to great time and effort to get up early in the morning, and I go to Rough Trade East, which is near Brick Lane, um, ah. the famous Brick Lane in East London. And exclusive vinyl releases are put out, very limited edition, limited pressings of vinyl albums are reissued as new records, and people will actually queue up to buy them. And it's very strict. You're only allowed to buy one copy each. And it's a wonderful thing. So I go and, you know, there are lots of exciting uh, releases, new things and re-releases to tempt people that are into music and they're into vinyl. So there you go. I'm sure there's one in uh, your area, Melissa. I'm almost certain. Well, I'm a lover of Brick Lane and the curry that you can get there as well. So you never know, Sam, now that you've shared it, you might see me and the audience there the next time. uh, You'll be like, oh, no, I've let out the secret. Damn it. Um, yeah, no, no, no secret. No, you should take part in it. It's it's a lot of it's a lot of fun. Maybe, maybe it's aimed at you know at my demographic, men of a certain age. But I love it. I must say, I think it's great fun. Well, thanks for sharing that. And I, you know, music is one way to to communicate um, as well, isn't it? And it's that form of expression. Uh, and it, it yeah, it can definitely tell a story uh, within the music. Um, and it's a definite brilliant way of communicating a message. So. Let's talk about communications a little bit more. You've been in internal communications, as we were saying, for quite some time now. What inspired you to get into it and where did it all start or who inspired you, maybe? Yeah, I, I mean, when I when I was at school, English was probably my favourite subject. You know, English literature, writing. 
I mean, when I reflect on it now, I, I think what I realise is that I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm probably much, some of my happiest moments are where I'm able to sort of articulate something or express something or share things with people who have kind of common experiences. And so I was always quite keen to write things, um, you know, just for fun, kind of often, you know, all kinds of all kinds of different writing. Um, and so that was that was definitely a thing when I was young. Um, when I finished my schooling, um, I studied English as a degree at Brunel University. And I also, funnily enough, I wrote about music um, when I was a student. So I wrote a lot of um, things about um, the kind of music that sort of shaped a lot of this sort of political climate in the US in the late 60s and 70s. And when I came, when I came out of my studies with a degree, um, I studied journalism briefly. I did a, I did a sort of NCTJ course, a sort of vocational intensive course. Um, and yeah, I, it, essentially, I went to work for Royal Mail in Edinburgh, and I just, I just actually went for two weeks as a summer job. I wasn't actually planning to to work there, but they heard that I'd had an English degree and was sort of just completed this journalism training, which was actually at Napier University in Edinburgh. And they started involving me in lots of things from a communications point of view on a voluntary basis. And the guy, I'll never forget it, the guy who worked there, a guy called Bill Forrest, he had the exotic title of communications manager. And nobody really knew what Bill did at that time. It was a brand new job. You know, communications like events was an emerging career at the time. It was nowhere near as well established as it is now. Um, and he kind of took me under his wing. You know, he came, he sort of came to see me. And to cut a very long story short, I was, I ended up then being there for about six months. A secondment opportunity came up, even though communication still wasn't my job strictly at that time. But a job came up in London, in Old Street, actually. There was a, an office that Royal Mail owned there. And they had an in-house agency called Communication Services, which is quite it was quite leading and quite groundbreaking for its time because it was almost acting as an external agency within the company where it sort of charged internal clients and you'd have job bags for projects and everything was kind of costed up. And, you you know, you had to sort of almost um, project manage um, every sort of piece of work, whether that was for post office counters or parcel force worldwide or Royal Mail delivery. Um, and that was kind of where it started. That's the sort of uh, the seed or the embryo of my oh. career. Um, I ended up staying at Royal Mail for years, actually, and did all kinds of different things for them. And by the time I left, I was sort of in my, I don't know, mid-20s, and I was quite ambitious, and I was sort of pushing for more opportunity that they just didn't feel they could give me at the time. And, and then I, I sort of went in a slightly different direction after that. Yeah, listening to you there, and like you said, I started doing lots of many different things. Uh, it really sort of dawned on me that, you know, the communication skills and being able to communicate effectively and pull teams together, you know, um, release new uh, initiatives, all of those things that communication, it really does put you into position where actually you can adapt yourself across many different areas of a business. Um, coming on to your podcast and what you know that your your love of communicating I suppose like what what give you the idea to start comes from the shed yeah it, it sort of it evolved quite naturally I wouldn't say it was an accident but I um I, I'll be quite honest with you I, I I sort of unexpectedly found myself in quite a tough moment 
in my career. Um, I'd, I'd had several very enjoyable years in the construction industry, um, and I was I was tempted to move into a different sort of role um, at Dow Jones, actually, in a media organisation. Um, and I worked there for about six months, but it just didn't kind of work for me because I, I think I, I didn't fully anticipate how difficult it would be to start and get really well established in a, a very different sector and a very different role in six months, right in the middle of a, a kind of global pandemic. Mm. And it was an unusual experience in the sense that I never once got to go into the office in London the whole time I worked there. So I never really got to meet anybody. And a lot of the team were in New York as well. And so I, I kind of, I found myself after that sort of experience, um, as a lot of people did in the pandemic, you know, doing a certain amount of soul searching and thinking about purpose and, you know, that sort of what does it all mean, fundamental question. And I suppose I wanted to sort of, there was a part of me that wanted to do something that would sort of make me feel sort of vital again and sort of tap into maybe a sort of personal project um, that would just kind of like a palate cleanser, you know, that might fire my imagination. I'd always been interested in, in radio and audio anyway, just being a kind of hobbying musician and, and growing up with, um, uh, you know, school friends who were also very into music and, and just being around people that were into sound and, and sound engineering and on and off over the years. And to, again, to cut a, a long story short, um, I thought I kind of thought to myself, well, I was reading a lot of stories on LinkedIn, for example, about um, individuals and companies and people just doing amazing things because they were under duress. You know, people, you know, the, the kind of mass furloughing of employees, for example. And actually, I didn't, I didn't jump straight to podcast. I, I'd actually enjoyed writing a couple of blogs Oh, okay. LinkedIn. And actually, I interviewed um, Rachel Miller um, a few weeks ago and we put the podcast out this week, who is well known to internal comms professionals, because funnily enough, she did a similar thing many years ago. She was actually write, writing a blog for a long time, much longer than I was. And, and she also decided she needed to sort of extend the reach of that conversation. So I guess I'd, I'd started writing sort of blogs about things like um, screen fatigue and actually how it was taking its toll on us all. And I tried to make it slightly humorous, but also with a sort of serious underlying tone, which is that I was kind of seeing quite poor behaviours, you know, as the pandemic increased. You know, people multitasking, not really paying attention to the call, just not kind of explaining that they wanted to have their camera off or, you know, just, just that sort of thing where everybody was under strain and a lot of pressure. And there were just a lot of things I, I just felt that, you know, people just weren't kind of being polite to each other. Mm -hmm. Of course, because you're not in the room, as many people have observed, you can't pick up the nuances of body language and all that kind of uh, important stuff. So I started writing things like that. I started putting pieces up about homeschooling. Um, but again, lighthearted piece. There was one I wrote called Coffees for Humanity, where I'm, I was sort of um, sort of poking fun at myself a little bit because <laughs> I tried to map all the local coffee shops. And to this day, I still have about six or seven um coffee uh, loyalty cards which are all partially stamped in my wallet so I've, I've kind of developed a really bad habit in the <laughs> pandemic but anyway th these these kind of pieces got quite a lot of engagement and there was a lot of discussions that had happened around it and I thought wouldn't it be lovely you know to to do a podcast and I've researched as, as I'm sure you did before you started your own podcast Melissa I, I researched it and I actually listened to podcasts 
about people who'd done it and who'd started it. And also, you know, a lot of people who were offering tips and techniques. I thought, oh, but can I do this? You know, really, you know, can I actually take the leap? Have I got the kind of skills, especially if it's me on my own? Um, and it's kind of, I've told this story a couple of times, but I must be completely honest with you. When I invited the first couple of guests, if I was to say to you hand on heart, was I completely sold on the idea at that point? I'm not sure I was, and I could say that in hindsight, because I kind of, I had I had a couple of people who I thought were brilliant people who would have a wonderful story to tell, but they were acquaintances. They weren't, it's not like we'd worked together or we were really close, but I really respected them as people. I think the first two guests were Drew McMillan, who was comms director at British Airways, at the time, which I know that you, you yeah, mentioned. Yeah, I did. I listened to that. Yeah. Yeah, and and Dr. Kirsty Fairclough, who works at Manchester Metropolitan University, who was trying to get a thing called the School of Digital Arts off the ground, and of course, you know, I, I put these speculative invites out, um, just thinking they would it would take quite a while for them to respond, or they'd probably say no, because especially because I didn't, it wasn't established. I was <laughs> effectively saying I'm starting a new podcast. You know, why would they? And I was really stunned when they both came back quickly and said, yes, you know, that's great. We'd love to be on your show. And I had to accelerate my learning quickly through a friend of mine, um, Gavin Calder, who's who's been a a childhood friend and, uh, you know, he's he's one of my best friends. But we spent some time just getting into the whole sound editing aspect of it and and testing and learning quite quickly (laughs) to accelerate the learning curve. And yeah, you just have to kind of take the leap, don't you? Um, and that's that's how comes from the shed evolved. And to be honest, the title is just a very literal one. I'd set up my shed as a, a kind of working <laughs> office, so it is very true to say that comes from the shed broadcasts from the bottom of my garden um, because wow. it, I kind of started the my blog was kind of called Comes from the Shed initially. Um, so yeah, it's a very literal. It's, it's really interesting and I'm so glad you shared that because let me tell you my take on it when I saw the title I thought oh maybe he's a fan of the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team because one of their key principles is to sweep the sheds as you may yes. know yeah. so I looked at it as oh that's really cool he's interviewing people that are comms but from the front line you know they're sweeping the shed with the people they're with the people and I was like oh that's really good but now you actually tell me it was in the shed so you know you've got these this two-sided approach actually that's even that's even more special now um I think that's fascinating you said because actually the the legacy book was a really influential text when I worked in the construction industry the book that was written about the all blacks uh, leadership approach you know, yeah. Sweep the Sheds, I think, was one of the chapters um, about the kind of culture within the Old Blacks. So that's that's great. I've never heard that before, but I, I love that. But yeah, yeah <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take that and run with it if that's okay this, with you. Yeah, this podcast you've got has got legs. And, and just to say to the audience, you know, I have checked it out and you've got some really, um, you know, really well um, positioned people that you have interviewed on there. Um, you know, Drew McMillson of um, British Airways to hear what and and the thing was is you were in you were interviewing him and it was happening so he was talking about something that was evolving happening at the time um so you know was was there a standout was that one of the standout moments or was there being like a another standout moment for you from your interviewing yeah no you're absolutely right it was very live and Drew was going through all of that stuff when he talked to me you know you're you're talking about uh, thousands of British Airways staff 
having to retrain. And of course, this is very topical at the moment because we will have seen this stuff um, on the news overnight about mm. um, British Airways staff, um, you know, talking about going on a strike this summer. So the legacy of, of what was going on there is, is probably still with the airline industry. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I've, I've been incredibly... Uh, fortunate um not only with drew but i've <laughs> i've done something actually that i must i must tell you this in the spirit of honesty and transparency because people do give you advice and some of the advice i've had well, let's say from within the corporate sphere is that you you can't you've got to kind of stay in your lane you know to to be to drive engagement you've got to be extremely consistent and thorough and you know you've got to have a certain type of guest so the reason i say that as a kind of caveat is that because I'm interested in music, I've actually invited people from the entertainment industry in the world of music onto my podcast. Um, and sometimes it's a case of if you don't ask, you don't get. I mean, but they were my podcast, I think, certainly for the first two years. I mean, it, it may it may evolve in time, but the the first two years of it has very much been about the pandemic and how we pull away from the pandemic personally and professionally. But I was lucky enough to get the the kind of Grammy award-winning jazz singer Gregory Porter um, wow. on the show, who actually started out life as a chef. And um, Gregory, I mean, you know, when when you get somebody who is quote-unquote famous or very famous, um, as he is, um, you don't, you tend not to get an hour with those people. You tend to get 15 to 20 minutes. But it was one of the most enjoyable interviews I've done. It was a fantastic um, privilege for anyone that's heard his music. And he's much loved by British audiences. I mean, almost even more so than he is in America. But I've also, um, you know, interviewed um, the, the Scottish um, pop soul duo Hue and Cry as well. Um, I interviewed there because I was interested in how the music industry had coped in the pandemic. But I've also I've also had fun talking to people who are sort of, either people who advise executive boards on uh, personal branding or careers and people who've made big career switches themselves so one of my favorite episodes was actually where I had two or three colleagues that I'd worked with in different organizations who've gone into very different sort of careers and I thought that was quite relevant because everybody was searching for their own personal purpose the pandemic so Katie Kelleher who's a well-known figure in the construction industry one of the first female tower crane drivers to really have a personal brand and and breakthrough and very influential person in the industry um a chap called anthony antunes who worked with me john lewis who went on to become a great actor in the west end and things like warhorse even though he was part of the comms team and john lewis wow. at one time and he was good at comms too he's a really good comms person um and also a chap um Ke kevin um who worked with me in uh, lang Ruark. And he's, he, although he works in kind of social media still, he's also a very successful scriptwriter. A lot of his work has been used in uh, short films. Um, and, has, you know, he's actually won awards for his work in scriptwriting. So, yeah, those are, those are just a few highlights. But it takes, on, <laughs> like it takes on a journey, you know. I mean, you, you, you will have been on this yourself. It's, it's great, isn't it, you know? It is. And, are you you know, you touched on it um, a little bit earlier when I asked you the previous question about what kind of inspired you to start and where did you where did you, you go with it? And I interviewed a guy um, a couple of podcasts back. It was in the first season and it was Alex Chisnell. And he's got um, one of the um, top podcasts in the UK called Screw It, Just Do It. And he literally called it Screw It, Just Do It because he was interviewing entrepreneurs. And, and that's what we talked about on the podcast was about the fact about 
you know, this expression through your voice and the just the tonality that it just adds so many layers to what you're trying to communicate. And there's not as many in the world. So I think it's fantastic that you're doing it. It's obviously supporting your personal brand. It's, uh, you know, on the back end of that, it's supporting any business that you're fronting and, and working um, for in, in sort of their journey because they're, they're getting a bit of PR um, <laughs> from, of course, that. So so from this and moving into more personal branding, do you feel that a lot of businesses out there have more opportunity um, to, to look at their personal branding? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I suppose it, it, it's a it's a dual kind of edged question. That isn't that there is the the brand of a company, its brand value. I guess increasingly, what I'm interested in as a, a sort of professional now is having worked in internal communications and employee engagement for twenty years. I'm increasingly interested in the employer brand as a whole. You know, what does your employer brand say about you as a company? What what is likely to attract people? to your organization, what is likely to keep people at your organization, you know, um, and what is the intrinsic kind of added value of it. Um, and so I think there's there's a lot of value in that because obviously we're in a moment now where there's a resource shortage and there's a recruitment crisis in the UK for a whole range of factors. I mean, Brexit, as we know, is one, but th- there's a whole litany of, of reasons why we can't recruit the number of people we actually need in UK PLC across all these different industries and sectors. So so there's that aspect of it. You know, how is your brand showing up for either uh, existing or new potential employees in the future? I think in terms of personal brand, I mean, I, you, you um, were saying that, you know, you'd seen me at the the recent sort of Engage conference. And I've, I've spoken, I've been lucky enough to speak at a couple of events this year talking about personal brand. And I think really it's unfortunate in a way because I think a lot of people are reticent to kind of engage in, in social media. And I, I do, I must say, I do sympathize, even though I, I sort of engage with it fairly regularly myself. I do understand actually why a lot of people would be reticent to do so because it can have that tag of sort of me, me, me. But I think. From a corporate sort of lens, I think organisations now, because of what I, I kind of talked about, this this sort of resource shortage, but because it's so competitive for talent and the best people, you kind of really need people in, in a way in which they're comfortable to do so, to be ambassadors for your brand, you know, just to sort of represent where they work for, why they like working for the brand, what, but what's their personal take on it? Because... On the flip side of that coin, I equally don't think we, we don't necessarily want to see people on any social media platform um, acting like automatons, you know, where they're just kind of reeling out a very corporate line about what it's like, whether that's to work for Fortnum & Mason or any other, other brand that I've, or company I've worked for in the past. I mean, what I've tried to do is just give a very personal um, take in the last sort of 12 months or so what life is like um, behind the scenes at Fort Mason. And it was just, it, it was quite deliberate because one of my initial observations was that I just wanted to see more stories about all the wonderful people that worked behind the scenes there. Because I think people had a certain perception of Fort Mason because of its sort of rich history and because of its um, associations as a royal warrant holder um, and just because of where it's placed geographically. But 
you know, I was I was meeting, you know, chefs, uh, shop floor people, distribution people, head office people, and just an incredibly um, diverse multicultural workforce. And I did, I just, I, I felt instinctively that people would be interested in that. But I think also, though, you know, and I think you, you have a real advantage at the start when you first join a brand. I think if you're prepared to be brave enough just to kind of go with it and talk about your early experiences as you're seeing things for the first time. You know, so the first time I went to the um, Diamond Jubilee Tea Salon, which is a very famous spot inside 181 Piccadilly, which is obviously the flagship store for Fortnum & Mason. That's quite a unique experience, you know. The night I was there, because of the pandemic, Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in Soho was temporarily closed. And so what they did was they created a partnership where a, a kind of um, trio from Ronnie Scott's came in the house band. So they were actually playing in the middle of the tea salon. Um, and, they, you know, they, it, it was quite, it's quite quirky fun because Sir Trevor MacDonald, the famous UK newsreader, was a, a sort of couple of tables away. And there were just one or two little things about it that were quite quirky. And I thought, well, I'm only two weeks into my job, but Fortnum's, you know, if if it's done respectfully and they're okay with me writing about it, I thought, why wouldn't I write about that? Why would people not want to get a flavour of that sort of experience? And so I, I think part of it is actually quite instinctual, the personal brand, but it has to be authentic. Um, I think once you, you wander away from your actual experience, and you you know you start to sort of do things that are not necessarily authentic in terms of who you are or your personal experience. I think that's maybe where it can become problematic. Ah, interesting. So my next question is going to be, how is it done well? But uh, but actually, let me let me twist this because you said a, a powerful thing there. Talks about ambassadorship, and I absolutely love the whole idea of brand ambassadors. Um, so when how, so let me ask you this instead, like. How do you how do you think we create these brand ambassadors within the business? Because if it, mm. just just to frame that, um, a lot of people that I speak to and I say, well, you should share more or share your experience or you know put post something on LinkedIn. Oh, but I've got to pass comms first. Um, I'd have to send this to them, and then they'd have to approve. Like, how how do you see that happening, especially within big organisations? Yeah, I, I think I've I think I've had to evolve my sort of thinking. Um, in that sense, because once upon a time, I wouldn't have necessarily said to people, you know, express yourself on LinkedIn or Instagram or, or any other sort of platform where kind of work and personal life um, can sort of intermingle. Um, I don't, but also to your earlier comment, I don't think we create ambassadors. I think they're already there. Um, I think a few years ago, what I realised was, um, and certainly I, I could sort of cite the construction industry as an example. There are people in that in any industry that are enthusiasts. You know, they are very, you know, they are social media natives, and they are very, very comfortable at expressing themselves um, on various platforms and in various different ways um, in their personal lives, and. I think we got to a point in communications whenever it was, I mean, it could have been 10 years ago or more where, you know, the genie was out of the bottle, it, you know, social media was happening. And I think there were all these sort of existential discussions about how you control it or how you monitor it. And, you know, I was, I was, I was right in there at the time. And I remember, I remember a lot of those conversations, but when I think, 
as the world turned and we realized we couldn't control it, I think what you had to do is just go, go with the flow that was already there. But just, you know, if people were particularly engaged and they were doing interesting things, but they weren't necessarily doing it under the auspices of the company umbrella, you know, how do you develop a relationship with those people? How do you actually talk to them um, so that you can meet in the middle? You know, maybe just kind of educate them about what good kind of behavior is. I don't think my personal view and other communicators will feel differently, but I don't think you can retrospectively make those people a corporate mouthpiece necessarily. But I, I just think it's it's about it's about a kind of compromise. As long as as long as you're not compromising the intellectual property of the organization or you're not transgressing say you know a, a non-commercial uh, agreement or a non-disclosure agreement or you're not transgressing kind of social media guidelines um then actually i think it can be quite a rich scene you know I, I sort of on my travels through the construction industry and different projects i met so many great young people and project offices and porter cabins and you know and high-vis jackets and hard hats you actually had quite a lot to say, but, you know, you have to be out there in the organisation to find those people. And I mean, I'd be quite lucky because I joined Fortnum and Mason at a time where there were just little pockets where the world opened up, windows of opportunity, where I could speak to the, you know, the shop floor sales assistant or the, the chef back of house um, or the you know, maitre d' or, or someone working in concierge. And I've been able to sort of gather their stories. But, you know, I think ambassadorship, um, it's not just something that happens on its own. I actually think part of the reason I put myself out there so much is that it's just a personal style thing. Not everyone will agree with this. And Rachel Miller and I had a really interesting conversation about this from a comms point of view. But I kind of feel to some extent that I should lead by example so that I can sort of pull people along with me. But of course, I think the dream is that you get to a point where you can program yourself out. This is something I discussed with Rachel Miller on my latest podcast where I described comms people potentially as the goalkeeper in a football team, but she was more akin to the thinking of communications as a function, like a, a sort of coach, coaching from the sidelines and doing things in a much more advisory capacity from a best practice point of view. Ooh, a meeting of minds there and a meeting of, of shared uh, insights. That's very interesting. Maybe it's a bit of both, right? You you know, you still have to, like you said, you still have to set those parameters, set a little bit of a framework, but educate people like you were saying, because honestly, the amount of people that I hear say, like I said about, you know, we've got to jump through a few hoops to do these things or that, oh no, only executives or directors do that, or we only see them do it. But they often don't know that maybe people like yourself um, in your sort of, you know, leadership position are doing it to encourage them to do it. They just see it as, oh no, well, Sam does it. And then that's it. Well, he should, um, you know, it's not my, my sort of thing. What I loved about what you were saying, ambassadors are there already. So as a, a in, you know, in people operations and performance, we, we analyze, we observe, we have a look at what is going on. And I always called them the champions. Right. And, and what always um, struck me was often the ambassadors are also the highest performers. They're the ones that are really that engaged. They really want to, you know, get involved. They care. But but they're also then there's these this these sort of um, 
ambassadors waiting in the wings. And what you were sharing there was that you're going to the shop floor, you're going to them as a leader to extract that story, to help them share it or see their value. Um, When I feel what I see a lot is that leaders don't often know that they don't see the diamonds in the rough. They don't see that, that they're just there. They just need to be listened to. Do you agree with that? Listen, I, you know, one of the things I was going to say to you there, and again, listening to your own observations, um, absolutely, you, you've no idea the thrill people get, the pride they take um, when I share their story, you know. Um, and I think, you know, the, the biggest thrill I get, in all honesty, is when we, you know, if I, I have conversation with employees who are managers or who work in sort of uh, functions of the business, who want to kind of engage with things like LinkedIn, but they don't really know how, you know, when we, we talk about it and I, you know, we create a kind of a comfortable space for them. As I mentioned earlier, it's really uncomfortable for a lot of people. And I do, I do understand that because it takes, there's quite a lot of runway you need before you get comfortable. You know, I'm, I'm by no means an overnight success. <laughs> Even if you consider I'm semi-successful in some of the things I do there, you know, I, I've been on the platform for 10 years or more. So it, take, it takes a long time before you understand what works and what doesn't. But, you know, when I see people getting great engagement and conversations kind of happening online where it, it sort of represents them well, but it also, um, as you mentioned earlier, reflects well on the, the business that they work for. I mean, that's just the best thing because I think then people understand that there actually is a safe space for them um, to create engagement in a different way, in a way that they didn't think was possible because they think it's for others or, you know, they just they just don't really know how to express themselves in a way that feels comfortable to them. Yeah, some 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 key, key words that are coming out of this, obviously engagement, we talked about the storytelling side of it uh, and to me, there's they they are very much um, uh, aligned, of course. But let's let's talk about the benefits right now for those that are listening, business owners. They really want to go, yeah, but that's all well and good, Sam and Melissa, and it sounds nice. But you know, we've got all these other operations things to do. What is a business that maybe isn't doing enough storytelling right now, or wants to move in that direction? What is it going to do for them if they start to do this? Well, to that I would say, look at the businesses that you admire online. You know, let's let's use LinkedIn as an example because it's a very ubiquitous sort of business platform for sort of networking and recruitment, but also em- employer brand. Look at the businesses that are quote unquote rivals of yours, competitors, or that are in the sort of same space. Look at the kind of engagement they're getting. Look at the kind of storytelling they're doing. Look at the kind of content they're sharing. The kind of engagement they're getting. How does it make you feel? You know. Do you feel that they're telling a compelling story? Do you feel that they're sharing wonderful content? Do you feel that they have a much greater audience size and reach to appeal to the kinds of employees and talent that you're looking for? And if the answer is yes, you need to be doing more. Uh, I'm not going to name the brands that I admire only because <laughs> that would be that might be problematic. But I, I yeah, at, especially in the current recruitment climate. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, well, Absolutely. <laughs> but I see lots of people uh, either in the industry that I'm in or sectors that I've worked in the past, and they're doing wonderful sort of stuff. But but here's here's the rub on this, and I, I, th- this came up quite a lot when I worked in construction, which is that I, I know for a fact that there are lots of organisations that PR themselves very well. So they may be talking about what they're doing in sustainability 
or well-being or inclusion and diversity, they may not be doing much, but they, they take a little pocket of what they're doing and they talk about it in a really compelling way with a, with a beautiful piece of content or, you know, a, a, a really well-curated film piece or a, a thought, thought leadership piece or an event or some social media campaign. The fact is they've executed the communication very well, but your organisation may be doing much more in that space in a much deeper and more considered way, but they're not communicating it particularly well. So who, you know, who wins, you know, in the landscape of 2022 post-pandemic? Mm. You, you might kind of argue that they're winning. You might argue that you've got more integrity and authenticity than they have. But the point, the point is this, is you should, you should at least represent yourself in the best way that you can. And I think that's that's where businesses eventually realize they've got to put time and effort into this stuff because it's they're not prepared to stand by and see rival organizations talk louder maybe about something lesser that they're doing um, when, in, when in actual fact you may be doing sterling work and a lot of the big topics that I've mentioned, but you're just not able to articulate it fully. And, and as a result, you may be losing the talent war. Ooh, and the revenue, right? So in the words of, uh, to quote one of the strongest salesmen in the world, or as he positions himself, Grant Cardone, you can have the best coffee in town, but if nobody knows you exist, you ain't going to sell any. Um, and and they, they have to be attached to it, right? But Starbucks, they, who, who, who says they have the best coffee in the world? Starbucks fans, of course. Not me. Um, you know me, no. I'm, uh... <laughs> but, but that's because I like giving money to local coffee houses, just yeah. to clarify. I'm not necessarily you, hating on Starbucks. You've tried enough to know. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, but no, no, you know, nothing to all those audiences that do uh, drink it and everything else. But, um, Absolutely. you know, I won't, I won't share uh, where mine are, otherwise, I might have to go knocking on there for some sponsorship. Um, but yeah, that, that's the point, isn't it? It does really, these these stories and the way that people buy into you, it's part of that marketing, it's part of the sales, and it does absolutely affect um, you know, your revenue and, and whether your customers are going to go elsewhere. I mean, we only have to look at TikTok and uh, everything else that people are starting to use a lot more for now. So thank you for sharing that. So in that case then, what are two things that you would recommend a business does right now to start bringing storytelling in well i think um I, well the first thing is it's if if you're approached as the you know a communications leader or somebody that's leading in communication and uh, you know you have a relationship with your leadership team or your senior management group is everybody collectively comfortable that the story of the business is clear and articulate you know um I was I was very lucky, very fortunate to um, work with the leadership team at Fortnum and Mason on their kind of future sort of long term strategy and launch in the last few months, which is really fascinating and a really enjoyable piece of work to be involved in. Um, but I think often, you know, what is the story of the business clearly articulated? Because I think if if at the very top level it's not clear and it's not easy to kind of recite and it's not easy to remember um, and the kind of the key ambitions of the business aren't widely understood by the population, that's kind of problem number one. You can't then you can't then necessarily create a compelling story yourself and expect a whole network of ambassadors in all kinds of different areas doing all kinds of different jobs to then pick up that button and run with it. You know, so I think that's the first thing. And I think I think 
taking that down to maybe more of a, a personal level, and you mentioned sort of ambassadorship, it's I, what I would say to people is you have to find your own personal perspective. You know, I mean, so if, if I give you an example, so I, I, I sort of work in and around um, HR, and I have done for many years HR teams. Um, and there's often a, a sort of conversation with HR colleagues and in the wider function. I'd like to say something about, you know, inclusion and diversity, well-being, um, sustainability, whatever, whatever those sort of hot topics might be. But I don't know what to say and I don't know how I would say it. But what you have to do is you have to just say something about your own unique take on it. And I think that's the hardest part. You know, we talked about discomfort earlier. Um, most most of the people who have mass gatherings and who have extensive followings on uh, platforms who sort of advise businesses and, and who've, who've set up a business for themselves as, you know, um, consultants on things like LinkedIn will tell you that you have to give a certain amount of yourself. I mean, they probably give a lot of themselves, more than I'm prepared or willing to do, even though people might consider that I share quite a lot of myself. I don't think I do. But the people who are prepared to share a lot about who they are and their personal opinion and take on various issues tend to get engagement if it's done authentically. But where people struggle is they worry that they're going to be seen as the voice of the company or that they're not sure what the rules are, what, what's the sort of safe space to play in. You know, will it, will it be viewed as that's an opinion being given by an employee of X company or is that... Is that me as Sam Blazard saying that? And I think I think you have to be clear with people that while um, platforms like LinkedIn and Instagram and Twitter are, of course, if you're tagged as an employee of a certain company in that space, um, people will obviously understand that what you say, especially if it's about the company you work for, is maybe loaded in some way. But you, you have to be able to exist in a personal space too. So I think most people understand that on my LinkedIn profile, yes, I talk about Fortnum and Mason because that's where I'm employed. That's where I work. But everyone understands that I've had a sort of podcast show or two for the last sort of two and a bit years. And that's also the main platform that allows me to share that content. And so the two things can coexist. Um, you, you're not primarily judged for what you share on there um, as an employee but I just think to make it interesting it's got to be about your own particular take on the issue and, and I think you know but it's I think as well most people I think understand how to post about the big issues in a respectful way because I think if you have a certain sort of um, level of experience and uh, you sort of understand the profession you're in, you kind of understand the guide rails and the guidelines and the rules around this stuff. And frankly, you know, the other the other big thing is a mechanical thing, Alyssa, you know. A lot of people, I sort of say to people, please try, you test and learn, just like and reply to things initially, you know, start to feel comfortable by engaging at a very low level just in conversations. But the kind of things that you're passionate about. You know, find authentic voices and engage with them. Don't just tune into all the noise. And then you can, people forget, it's very, you can edit posts. 
you know, if you make a mistake or you, you a, a line appears in it where you think that didn't come across properly, you can edit. You can just tweak your post or you can delete it very quickly, you know. And I don't think that's the greatest disaster in the world. I think people believe that they're leaving a, an imprint that will be there forever and ever. Um, and, of course, it may well be to some extent. It may stay in the cloud <laughs> yeah. for generations. But, you know, I'll have to just live with the Should the we talk about the UK government at this point? No, we need to. Well, luckily, I wasn't on social media at the time. So <laughs> <laughs> hopefully I'm OK in that regard. <laughs> Uh, absolutely. I think you've, you've really hit the sort of nail on the head there. Is, you know, you talked about define what it is, you know, what the values are, what, what, what kind of story that you want to tell as a leader from the top, then give them some type of guidance, but allow them that opportunity. If someone's got that enthusiasm, I see it as, well, let them just guide them, have a conversation, stay curious. What is it that they were hoping to intend and maybe sharpen up their communication skills so that they can be more adept at, at, at doing these things as well um I, yeah I see it as it's it's important for people to be able to express themselves but like you said also to be enabled to do it with or without technology right it's the technology piece that comes um comes with that especially for a construction industry or somewhere that's that's been long-standing um you know people have been in Royal Mail 30 years I mean you know Europe car 30 years are they are they as connected with these um these sorts of tools and things that are out there yeah and it's it's all engagement of course and, and this was the 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 fundamental issue becomes do you want to lose that engagement because you know we were talking earlier about people who may be just engaging with social media in their personal lives but they don't really have a relationship with the corporate sort of communications team the thing is you either lose that engagement that either happens independent of you you know or you develop a relationship with it where both parties benefit and it kind of ampli- amplifies the whole. Um, and I think that's quite an interesting thing to have observed. And so, you know, you, you have to find the the kind of the sweet spot, you know, and it will exist because I suppose what I'm saying is you have to allow the person to be who they are, express who they are. But on occasion, just say, look, that's you just, you know, you're actually acting more in a corporate capacity there. That's you with your sort of company hat on. You know, and if you were to sort of post or talk or could you do it kind of in this way, uh, it's not to be manipulative. It's just that, you know, that's you're, you're posting about that and you're interacting in that way because you're an employee of our organization. You're in that space because you're employed by this organization. That's what's got you into the room or, you know, into the scenario that you're talking about. And so at that point. It doesn't have to be a relationship, but if there isn't a relationship, you're losing all that engagement. So all these people who are out there um, who are doing things that are related to their careers, it's it's kind of it's kind of better that you have a network. And it's not, as I was saying earlier on, I learned quite a few years ago, it's not about control. It's more about just respect on all sides where there's a sort of mutually beneficial relationship and then there's a sort of self-fulfilling perpetual cycle of good yeah. communications yeah and you what you've spoken about that made me think about well there's a sphere of influence anyway right um we we talk to people about the company that we work at if we're not necessarily talking about it or about the things that happen on social media mm-hmm. but we're already expressing something so yeah, there's there's definitely more room for for companies to to get this better. So so thank you for for sharing your insights on that. So let's let's move on to Fortnum and Mason and and a little bit more about them. So how would you briefly describe the culture there? 
How would I describe the culture? That's that's a very good question, and it's quite a it's quite a difficult question. I, I I would I would say I love the culture there. I think I think the people there are just really wonderful, and and they're a very inspiring group of people, uh, which is why I've enjoyed working there so much. I, I guess um, it's a very unique culture, but I think to understand it, you have to understand that um, Fortnum and Mason has a very famous um, global kind of hub or sort of headquarters at um, 181 Piccadilly in central London, which is steeped in history and steeped in a 315-year-old history and steeped in a history with the royal family as well. But the component parts of the business aren't so widely understood because it's it's a retail business, uh, obviously, because it it sells sort of food, um, uh, drink and, and other sort of products that are synonymous with the brand. But it's also has uh, quite a sizable hospitality business within it. So mm-hmm. Fortnum's owns restaurants such as 45 German Street, which is actually part of the 181 Piccadilly site. Um, it has the Diamond Jubilee Tea Salon that I've referred to. It has a cafe called The Parlour. Um, a lot of people don't realise it has a, a, a spectacular location called The Royal Exchange, which is a building you will see as you emerge from the um, the staircase at Bank Underground Station. And if you go through the kind of Roman columns there, you'll see a, a, a spectacular atrium where um, Fortnum's has both um, a restaurant and a, a sort of concession, a, a store. Um, but it also has um, physical stores in Terminal 5 at Heathrow and in Hong Kong. And so when you, when you have a, a business that's made up of different component parts like that, I find it difficult to summarize the the kind of culture in a, a kind of neat sort of soundbite. You know, it's not okay. it's not that easy to do. But I must say, I I think people that work there are very passionate about what Fortnum's is, its history. And if I was if I was to try and sort of sum it up, I think people do really believe in the the kind of magic of the the experience of Fortnum's, you know, um, you'll often hear phrases there such as joy giving things, but I don't think it's necessarily just about the things. It's just about creating those moments of magic where people experience the brand and that can be offline, online, physically. Um, you know, I think in when times are tough as they are now, you know, we're, we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis. You would sort of say, well, what could Fortnum's have to offer in a moment like that? But as we found in previous recessions in recent history, it's the businesses that can provide a little bit of magic in people's lives to alleviate what they're going through. Um, and actually, probably the businesses at the lower end of the scale, um, the, the kind of um, value outlets or discounters that tend to survive or have a robust position, it's it's the sort of, it's those businesses that are maybe somewhere in the middle that tend to struggle um certainly that's what recent history has told us so i think that's what fortnum's is really about it's it's just about creating a little bit of magic whether whether you know you're a shopper that you know just, just buys one of their sort of um tofalosis biscuits for a relative or someone at christmas time or whether you're somebody who you know is a cereal buyer of sort of hampers in the summer or you love visiting the restaurants it's just it's just you know, taking people out of their everyday lives and creating something so sort of special for a period, you know, yeah. um, that's what it's all about. 
I love that. And I'm going to come on to your predictions for the retail and, and uh, sort of world in a little bit. But I, I see that you're right. People are willing. If something feels like a, a priceless experience, you, you know, I always say this um, story, even when looking at service and sales, right? Private, pr- price is a myth. Like it's, it's a myth because I could pay 200 pounds for Justin Bieber tickets today. But if I knew he was appearing tomorrow, everyone was there. And now the tickets were 600 pounds, I'd pay them. I'd have an amazing time. I wouldn't worry about what I'd spent because I was there and I was in that experience. Um, Yeah, love that you touched on that. Absolutely love it. I also love the phrase joy giving things. Um, Also, I didn't imagine that I was going to talk about Justin Bieber on his date. Well, (laughs) well, here's the thing. I haven't just taken my 15 year old daughter to see Harry Styles at Wembley Stadium. Ah. Not a thing I thought I was ever going to experience. I know exactly what you're talking about because I bought the tickets reasonably near to the date of the event. Um, it was a sort of sort of spontaneous thing. And I, I absolutely get what you're talking about. I had to sort of consider the price of the tickets at the time I was buying them. But frankly, you know, she had a wonderful time and she'll probably, I don't know, will she remember it for the rest of her life? She'll certainly remember it for quite a while, I would have yeah. thought. So it was, it was getting money well spent. But I know what you mean about intrinsically, what is the price and the value of, of anything, you know? Yeah, the, the experience, the memories, who you're there with. I'll definitely uh, check out the tea salon. I haven't been there yet. On your recommendation, maybe I'll get to see uh, a few famous faces while I'm there as well. Who knows? Um, but uh, you're know. right. I, and I used to travel so so much um, in my corporate world that Heathrow and the Fortnum and Mason store, when you said it, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Um, the picnic baskets, they get me every time. Um, but anyway, on the point about joy giving things and this phrase and being a man of the literacy that you love, what are some key words that and language that are part of um, the internal comms at, at Fordham and Mason? What kind of appears a lot? That's interesting. That's very interesting. Joy, I've, never, I've never been asked does. that what question else? before. Um, I don't know. I, it's, that's, that, yeah, I don't know. I think it's harder for me to sort of name specific phrases. It's probably, I think, I think tonally, um, there, there's an enthusiasm. There's an enthusiasm about the language at Fortnum's because actually, if we think about, you know, our the, the brand of Fortnum's, or you know, I, I sort of started the when we talked at the start of our interview, I was talking about employer brand, but I think there's a there's a certain degree of permission at Fortnum's to talk, um, possibly in a joyful way mm. internally, and of course, there's a balance to be struck there because you know there are lots of different subjects internally and and as you and I know employee communications often has to deal in reality and a tough reality you know we've emerged from a pandemic where we were practically doing crisis comms every week for two years um but the, there's yeah there's definitely a permission to talk and I, I I use this word very carefully but I don't necessarily mean there's a sense of mischief but maybe playfulness is is kind of the thing because the the brand itself as i mentioned there is about providing these moments of delight or uh, some kind of special experience and so i think part of our role as internal communications people is you know and, and, and this comes back to actually every job that i've ever done as the years have progressed i think i think increasingly what i've observed and what i've tried to sort of challenge leadership teams on is 
the customer or the external world sees our brand or our experience in this way. They're having an incredible time, an incredible experience, you know, and I don't just mean this about Fortnum's, but we're rolling the red carpet out. Let's just treat this as an analogy because Fortnum's does have red carpet. So I want to be clear, I'm talking about all brands, but, you know, you roll the red carpet out for customers, but what's the experience employees are getting, you know, and that can be everything from the health factors to, you know, are they getting company mobile phones? Are they getting the best laptops? What's the benefits package mm-hmm. like? Do, do they get to experience the food and drink that we sell? You know, what kind of, um, you know, benefits do people get? It's, it's, so it's, it's kind of, you, I suppose the point I'm making is you can't have too much of a disparity. I know I've sort of wondered a bit from your original question, which was about language, but it, it goes beyond, I think, language because, one, I think you're you're trying to um, reflect what that brand is all about internally, and that comes out, as I say, in the, the playfulness and the spirit in the language. But you've, I think the bigger issue is there can't be too much of a disparity between internal culture and what employees experience and how you present your brand to the external world. Because if it's a, a magical, sort of wonderful kaleidoscopic landscape for the customer, but for employees, it's more, you know, more shades of grey or it's more about um, commercial reality, then you're going to have a problem. And I mean, th- this was a big, big consideration and a big conversation point in John Lewis as well when I worked there, because that had such a sterling reputation for being about partners and the partnership and, and how heavily uh, bought in everyone was to the ethos of what it meant to be an employee at John Lewis. Again, you know, the, the, the disparity can never be too great between the ideal and the vision of you know, th- that's been sold to people, what they believe the company to be when they join or if they've lived through the kind of good times in inverted commas. If, if you're not living up to that, then you've, you've got a problem. Sam. This may be one of the most inspirational interviews that I've had. And I can see you smiling thinking, really? Thank you. You talking about, I could talk to you about this stuff all day. Um, Maybe at the the tea salon one day. Um, (laughs) roll, Roll the red carpet out for employees. What, what a communication in itself. Like, let's just let that hang there for a moment maybe i'll create a campaign about that i don't know maybe you're giving me inspiration i think i think hey we could be a power team on this come on let's get on the boat (laughs) no but it's a friday afternoon chat we um interestingly i also interviewed someone that used to say that they kept fridays for something they called friday um so maybe doing (laughs) the podcast on friday afternoons is part of a friday thing but uh, yeah i think that that kind of metaphor that kind of analogy of well, are you going to hold the mirror up to that red carpet that you hold out for the customers? And and is it actually transpiring into your internal team? I love that. I'm excited to see what you end up doing with it, whether you bring me you in, know. whether we have a chat about it. I'm I'm very excited, but it's definitely going to inspire our audience. And it's, it's certainly inspired me. Um, predictions for the retail world uh, within the next five years. What do you think will happen? That's 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 very difficult, actually. That's a very difficult question because um, when I when I worked at John Lewis, and I, I was very privileged because I, I, at the time, I again I, I worked with the leadership team. We were a great leadership team working on their uh, long term strategy, which at the time was was all about a retail revolution. And they realised even then, John Lewis, um, ten years ago, that. I think the phrase that was used at the time was Amazon are eating our lunch. 
um, because it was it was less about less about who you would imagine it was uh, that they were focused on. You know, they'd moved on from kind of worrying about Marks and Spencers, for example, to just worrying about those pure players. Because actually, even at that stage, I think John Lewis's biggest store had sort of morphed and evolved from being the flagship at Oxford Street to actually being the website. The website was the biggest store, and it, it quickly accelerated and raced away. Um, and so, you know, they, they were seeing that trend of the death of the high street, that um, retail theatre was going to be important, experiential retail, you know, how could you do more? It wasn't just about, you know, getting people to kind of stay in store and give them experiences, you know, whether, and then would you, would you open concessions that were about booking your holiday, which were about getting a beauty treatment, which were about, I don't know, or, or having a, an agreement that you would stay in that retail centre, you know, encouraging people to have whole days out, go to the cinema, go for a meal, all those, all those kinds of sort of retail theatre experiences. So that, that's been known about and talked about. Um, all of the, the retailers who have been evolving, and Fortnum's is no different, I've seen all that stuff come out. And that's why I think it's, it's hard for me to predict where things may go because that whole situation was evolving. And then when COVID came along, it was a little bit of a... Um, it put a break on things in all kinds of different ways. Um I'm giving you a long answer here, but if I just add one other sort of thought into this, which is that, I don't know about you, but I got much more into the local ecosystem again. I think there were, you know, COVID was a terrible, terrible thing and thousands of people died and there were lots of mistakes that we can all sort of learn from. But one of the more positive aspects of it, if you can call it that, is that didn't we all start shopping locally more? You know, didn't I start buying coffee from the local coffee houses and, you know, eating out at the local restaurants more and, and you know, giving all the, the sort of local businesses um, more of my trade? I, I, I wasn't driving so much to sort of out-of-town shopping malls. I wasn't going into central London as much. And I think, you know, that's why I think retail trends um, are slightly harder to predict. But what you are seeing, though, is... You know, my old employer, John Lewis, is going into homes, you know, building accommodation for people, you know, using some of its real estate to actually create property, you know, like living spaces. And who would have who would have predicted that uh, either 10 years ago or pre-pandemic? Mm. So I think um, there are all kinds of things happening. But I think you will see that experiential trend continue because – it's very, very difficult, I think, to differentiate yourself from others. But the death of the high street, mm, I'm not sure about that. Uh, there will be other retail sector industry experts who will have a more nuanced and in-depth view of this than I will. But I'm not convinced that the high street, whatever that means anymore, is dead. Because I think the, the pandemic uh, halted its slide a little bit. And it's kind of starting to evolve in quite an interesting way. I mean, obviously, technology plays a part because people are always now going to want to buy things in different ways. So we, we know that people are very promiscuous as well, that they will go into shops, look at things, touch and feel them, research something on the, the Internet while they're there, and then go home and buy them at 20% less. But frankly, 
you know, when people come into Fortnum's, they probably can't get the equivalent thing anywhere else. And so they feel compelled to buy something in Fortnum's. Now I'm not, you know, it's, it's all, it's all very different depending on what part of the retail sector you're in. But I think it's hard. It's hard for me personally to predict future trends in that sense. But I, I, I guess I've given you a very long winded answer on some of the things I've observed in the last five to 10 years. So I don't know if that informs in any way where we may end up. It might actually be one of the most interesting questions that I've asked you today, because to see you sit there on this uncomfortable pin question and go, hmm, I don't know, actually, and, then, and sort of brainstorm around it, think about your experience. Um, thank you. That was that was actually a magical answer um, and also got me thinking in terms of what I believe and what, what do I think and what are my values and do I shop locally and, and am I actually going, you know, where am I doing my shopping? What am I doing? And, and very interesting that you said about John Lewis. So it seems like it's moving from retail into more enterprise. Mm-hmm. It's becoming, it's not, it's not a shop, it's not a shop, it's an empire. If you're going to yeah. start, if you're going to start doing, you know, the development, you can now do the interior. You can do, it's, it's a, it's a whole piece of the jigs. It's the jigsaw. Yeah. It's not just well, a piece. One thing I probably, actually, one thing I didn't say that I've realized actually uh, is one, one trend I think you're almost certain to see continue for the long term will be, uh, you know, how comfortable brands are talking about their, their own sustainability credentials um, and fighting off any accusation at all that they may be greenwashing. But also what's what's the full scale and complexity of supply chains? And, you know, and I think Fortnum's been doing a lot of really interesting work in hospitality. There's a, a restaurant called Field that exists. Um, that's another place, actually, you might want to, <laughs> to check out. But it's all based on sustainable principles, sustainable produce. A lot of the, the produce is sourced actually within a few miles. And even, even the detail to which the lettuce is grown in terms of hydroponic farms, which retain about 97% of the water that's used in the growing of the oak leaf lettuce, for example, mm. You know, that's that's storytelling. But I think that is a trend I'm fairly convinced that is going to continue for at least the next five years because that's going to become more important for businesses. It's going to become more important for consumers as time goes on. So that one I can probably say for, for certain is going to continue. You have come full circle, Sam, on this. And you know what? You just finished on another keyword storytelling it all comes back down to it whether it's local whether it's big what are you doing with that story and I'm excited to see what you end up doing with the branding everything you do around this um for Fortnum and Mason and and beyond um I really feel like getting to know you and really getting under the hood of, of Sam and your thoughts and your experiences today has, has been fascinating I've got one last question for you you're having a dinner party <laughs> maybe at the tea salon <laughs> Who are you going to invite? Who is who are the three people uh, you would invite, dead or alive? Well, my, my big musical hero was Prince, uh, who, who died a few years ago, sadly. Yeah. Uh, I've got this is a shameless plug, but I have I have a second podcast. Would you believe about yeah. the music of Prince and his and a lot of the musicians he worked for over the years, um, which is great fun because in the absence of Prince still being alive and the possibility that I would actually get to interview him about his uh, very fascinating career. I have to just spend my time talking to some of the musicians uh, that worked with him and also people that wrote about him. So he would definitely be one. Um, I mean, there are so many kind of interesting uh, 
people, aren't there? Um, leaders as well. Um, I'm just trying to think who else I would who else I would invite. Um, it's very very difficult this because. I may have to have I may have to have time to think about this. You can have more than one dinner party in your life. Maybe just who yeah. you'd have to, if it was tomorrow or tonight. Oh right. Or did you say sort of three guests? Like it's not. You know, you can have as many dinner parties as you like. It's your parties. <laughs> let me, but just let three me, for three for the next party that you're going to throw. So Prince would be there. Yeah. yeah. Let me let me have a think about this. And I'll, what I'll do is I'll try and answer you in the next five minutes because I would actually like to give me three people. We can edit this particular bit out, but. Um, <laughs> I'm going to think about that because I would like to give it because there are obviously loads of people. Uh, I find, oh, actually, <laughs> you might be you might be surprised. Well, I've, I've got two now. Let me see if I can think of a third. Um, okay. Let me think. So I've got I've definitely got two in my mind. Do, do they have to be alive or no? Dead or alive? Well, Prince isn't. <laughs> unless, no, Prince isn't. Well, that's what I mean. That's, why that, that's that's kind of what I'm asking you. Um, let me think. Who else? Um, like I say, I've got a second person. Um, okay, dinner party. This is a bit of a random selection. There could have been there could have been so many different people uh, in this list, but I think Prince is one because he was my musical idol, and I'm a child of the eighties. So you know, the the music that you listen in your youth is the music that stays with you forever, as I now discover. Um, he he would definitely be one I'd love to have around the table. Um, I'm actually, uh, to use somebody who's more current and is from the news media and the political climate, um, I know this 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 person's a bit marmite to some, but I'm actually a big admirer of Laura Kunzberg, the ex-BBC political editor, um, because I just think somebody who is loathed in equal measure by both the left and the right of the p- political spectrum must be really, really good at what they do. They must they must seriously be bothering people, and I think she's actually got bags of integrity, uh, regardless of what other people think. So I'm a big fan of hers, and I'm a bit sad actually that she's sort of stepped down a bit from a quite a prominent role she had at the BBC. She's also reported on probably some of the most tumultuous times in politics ever. So she's a fascinating character. Um, I actually um, I, again to sort of stick with somebody current, maybe from the world of. Uh, the arts, um, like a lot of people, I quite wanted to see the one woman play recently by Jodie Comer, who's uh, famous for sort of Killing Eve. Not because I was a massive fan of Killing Eve. I, I, I'm not really a big fan of Killing Eve, but I do think she's um, just a really talented actress. And I would have quite liked to have seen that. Uh, another figure from the world of music, maybe Kate Bush. I think she's a really fascinating person who doesn't come out in public often. Um, she's having a bit of a revival through Stranger Things, but again, having been a child of the eighties, um, but you know, lots of lots of political figures. Uh, you know, I, I quite like the idea of having a, a sort of off the record chat with the Obamas. Uh, you know, Barack oh, wow. Obama and Michelle Obama, especially given, you know, given that they they kind of created history in the United States, and if you think about the current political climate in the United States, I'd, I'd love to know what they. They thought about that. Um, and I also, I, I mean, I love sports as well. So, you know, I, I've, I, I kind of love some of the athletic achievements of the past, you know. Um, you know, I, when I was a kid, I used to marvel at uh, people like Daley Thompson, you know, who won Olympic gold medals. Yeah. Just, just incredible athleticism. But more, more close to home, um, the area I live in, not a million miles away from where I live, we, you know, we 
we seem to just, for some strange reason, be generating a couple of people who've risen to global prominence. Uh, so Dean Asher Smith, who is, you know, Britain's sort of fastest sprinter and one of the world's fastest sprinters, is from kind of around here, not, not far from here. And Emma Radicanu as well, who has become a kind of media darling. And we hope obviously that she'll do well. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure how that group of guests would get on together, but I mean they're just a few people that I think would be a lot of fun <laughs> that around it. I love this. Table. We've gone from a three-person dinner party to an event. Yeah, <laughs> We've get, gone, but I'm getting look, on a roll now. It's but. your party, that's it. But maybe you've just manifested your interviews for the next year on the podcast. Who knows? Um, or just even one of them, I'd love to get. Yeah, in, in high, that's what I say. Yeah, we've absolutely we've we've put it out into the universe now. We'll we'll see what happens. Uh, Sam, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today and be an emotioneer. Um, thank you ever so much for being here. Thanks, Melissa. It's been an absolute pleasure. A really good fun to record. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Emotioneering Podcast with me, Melissa Curran, today. It's been great. Remember to subscribe to Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or all three. You can also come to the website, modernmindgroup.com, where you can subscribe there, stay in contact, and let us know what you really think. Give us the feedback. This is going to get better by knowing what you think. Uh, Has this given you food for thought? Has it helped you change something? What has it inspired? Let us know, because that's why we're doing it. It's all about the people, people, people. (laughs) Have a great day. And ciao for now.